You may be seated. Well, good morning again. Um, my name is Ash, and I get the privilege of being on staff here. And another happy Mother's Day to you all. I think many of you know this about me, but the last time I had the privilege of being up here, I was significantly pregnant. Um, I was in my ninth month of pregnancy, and I'm glad to say that we welcomed our second baby girl um, into the world on December 22nd. And so she's hitting that four-month mark. And similar to my dear friend Kelsey, I too am sleep-deprived. Um, so we're going to stick closely to my notes. We had a real conversation this morning, Aisley and I did, about how in this household we don't wake up at 5.45 in the morning. Um, that's not what our family does. And so if you want to stick around, girlfriend, you've got to learn how to sleep at least until 6.30, okay? Just 45 more minutes. That's all I'm asking for. But honestly, it is really good to be with you. Uh, I'm excited about this series that we find ourselves in called Close Encounters with Jesus. Um, for me, it's been a series that has caused me to really think about my own encounters with Christ. And I was thinking about when was it that I first encountered Jesus? What was that like? What was the draw for me? Because um, I am a typical millennial who didn't grow up in the church. Uh, I actually met the Lord in high school, and I'll talk about that in just a second. I had a short bout with the Presbyterian Church in Toledo, Ohio. Um, my grandmother was a devout member there, and so my father, kind of out of allegiance to her, we did the whole Christmas Eve and Easter gig, and then when she passed away, um, church was just no longer a part of our family life. And so when I was in high school, there was uh, a young life leader who entered into my high school and just started to build a relationship with me. And I remember um, one day she said, hey, would you want to come to this camp in Virginia? And I was like, no. Um, but somehow I ended up in a divine way on that camp. And what I remember is they do a great job in Young Life of sharing the gospel. So for five days I heard about this person of Jesus this person who was raising people from the dead, feeding 5,000 people with just loaves and fishes. He was healing a paralyzed man. He gave someone his sight back. And I remember having this moment on a rock in Virginia where I said, if that Jesus, that guy really did every single thing that they've talked about this week, then it changes everything about my life. Nothing will ever be the same. And as I've thought about that moment in this series and in the context of it, I've had to really own the fact that that kind of thinking, that thinking that if Jesus really is who he says he was and he did what he said he did, then that changes everything. And I'm really excited this morning to share another story that if you have spent a minute in church, I'm sure you have heard. And if you're new here, I pray that this story comes alive for you in the way that it did for me in Virginia almost 15 to 16 years ago. That you would hear it with new ears and see it with new eyes that Christ is up to something profound. That he's doing something that should change the way that we live our life day in and day out. So I'm going to pray for us and then uh, I'll read our text for this morning. Lord, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the person of Jesus. 
And we just confess that sometimes we hear these stories and they lose their wonder and awe on us. And we pray this morning that we would see things that we have not seen before. That we would be reminded of things that we have long forgotten. And that we would be moved to action by the person of Christ. We pray all of these things in your son's name. Amen. So you can turn with me to Mark 2 or feel free to follow along on the screens. It goes like this. A few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came by bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to, the, to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. I would like you to imagine for just a moment that you are the jailer at the Boulder County Jail. And it's one regular Sunday morning, And you see a common man enter into the jail to meet with one of the long-standing criminals. One who spent his entire life committing crimes in and around our city. You're very familiar with him. And this common man waltzes into the jail, proceeds to sit down in front of the criminal, and he says, you know what, today I pardon all of your crimes. You're free to go. You don't have to stay here. Here's actually the key to the jail. Go ahead and unlock your cell. Be gone. And as you hear and see this, there's a part of you that starts to sort of freak out. You go, this is not how the justice system works. We don't just hand the keys of the jail to the criminals. Actually, you, my friend, common man, have no authority to let anybody go. What are you doing? It feels like insanity to you. And I'll be honest with you, this is precisely what we see Jesus doing in this very text. Jesus is preaching most likely in Peter's home in Capernaum. A few, of his, a few friends are desperate to get their friend in front of Jesus, so they do this wild thing. They climb up to the top of a roof and they rip it off. And then they go, you know what, let's lower this man into this this home and hope that he sort of lands appropriately in front of Jesus and Jesus will hopefully do something. 
And as the man lands at Jesus' feet, Jesus responds with what's sort of an odd and blasphemous statement. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus walks into the situation, pardons a man with what appears to be zero authority. He's a carpenter from Nazareth. Who does this man think that he is to pardon the sins of anyone? Only God can do that. And the scribes are seated around him, probably covered in rubble. And they don't even have to say it, Mark notes. Jesus knows what they're thinking. They're remembering from their education that there is, that no human can forgive sin. We only sin against God, therefore God is the only one that can forgive. And certainly, God is not seated in front of them. This couldn't be the Messiah. This couldn't be God. This is just an ordinary man who happened to have a lucky day with a leper and a demon. But the reality is, Jesus knows all of that. He knows their questions. He knows their doubts. He knows their concerns. He knows that inside, they're furious. But he also knows that the man in front of him was perhaps hoping for something different. Hello, I'm paralyzed here. Hello, my friends made me do this. They just ripped open the roof of a home and got me in front of you. Can you take care of my physical need, not my spiritual one? And likely, I, I imagine that the four men peering down into the hole were hoping for something different as well. Our friend is paralyzed. Why are you talking about sin? He knew he was confusing them. He knew what the man wanted. He knew what the scribes were there to get from him. He knew it all, friends. And the reality is he knows it all when it comes to you and I as well. He knows every thought seated in our hearts. We don't even have to say them. And for some of you, this is really great news and provides great solace to you. Because if you're anything like me, sometimes I find it hard to utter the words that I'm thinking in my heart. And I find it really reassuring that Christ knows me better than I know myself. But there's another side to me as well. It's probably the side that the scribes are sort of embodying that I'm not always excited for Jesus to know my every thought. And that the scribes aren't having their most shining moment in their thought life. And I too can own that I too bark back at Jesus sometimes. How's that fair? Why does that person get forgiven? How is this right? You should really be working on this, Jesus, not that. Don't you see that there's all of these physical needs in our world? Why are we so concerned about the spiritual? And if I'm so bold, I sometimes in my mind feel like I bark back at Jesus, you don't have that kind of authority in my life. And friends, I'd invite you to consider what kind of authority does Jesus have in your life? Are you the man on the mat? Desperate for physical healing or a tangible manifestation of God, yet reluctant towards your own sin. Okay with a God who attends to the physical needs of the world, but when it comes to a greater spiritual need, you're ignorant and standoffish. 
Or are you the friends? The ones believing that Christ has all authority. The one who has the power to heal and set things right. That it doesn't matter what form, shape, or invitation it takes, you are all in. Or are you the scribes? Questioning the authority of Christ in your mind. Remember, in this story, they didn't outwardly question Jesus. He knew it. It was a position of their heart. Are you standing off to the side questioning and doubting? Could God possibly do that? He couldn't possibly forgive this person. His church certainly doesn't work like that. You've placed limits on the authority of Christ. So what kind of authority does Jesus have in your life? And this is an important question, and I think it's the, the thing that Mark is getting at in this story, is the authority of Christ. Mark makes a shift here from the first chapter of talking about sort of healing and highlighting Christ's power and miracles, and he becomes very clear that we need to intersect healing with forgiveness. That Christ isn't just this miracle genie worker, but that instead he is the son of man who came to forgive the sin of the world. And so Mark starts to tell the story being very clear about one thing. This isn't about healing a paralyzed man. It's about the forgiveness of sins. And he starts to tell the story and sort of foreshadow at who Christ will need to be in order to stand up under the name of Son of Man. And he makes it clear that this story is about the authority that Christ needs and wants to have in our life. And so three things that I think we can see Christ have the authority in our life. One, to heal all of our diseases. Randy spoke about this last week, and we see it here again in Mark 2. I'm talking about him healing a paralyzed man in a very flippant way this morning. I recognize that that is a miracle, that a man walked into a room unable, or he didn't walk into a room. Good point. Um, there's that sleep deprivation there. Okay. Um, he walks in. He doesn't walk into a room. He gets lowered into a room unable to walk, and then he gets to leave being able to walk. That's a miracle. However, I don't think it's the most important thing. We're going to see again these miracles of Christ. We're going to continue to talk about these encounters where Jesus changes the life of someone in a miraculous way. It's incredible. But I think what Mark is doing this morning is he's saying that's not the most important thing. So secondly, he has the authority to read our hearts. I spoke about this a little bit ago, but you can see it in the text. It says this. It says, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Again, we don't have to speak in grandiose prayers, but that God knows the whispers and the wonderings of our heart. And whether we want to give him the authority to read our hearts or not, he can. But I think most importantly, what Mark is saying is that Christ has the authority to forgive our sin. And I want to spend the most time on that final point if I can. I'll be honest, 
I personally, even as I came to know Christ as a teenager, was really struck by a Jesus that healed and by a Jesus that did miracles and did all of these really flashy things. That really caught my eye. And I think sometimes we can get really hung up on this Jesus that enters into a physical world and changes a reality. But when we start talking about our spiritual need, the chasm between us and God, the sin in the world, our internal sort of being, I think we start to go, you know what? I kind of like the Jesus who heals 5,000 or feeds 5,000 and heals a paralyzed man. But when he starts looking at me and wanting to sort of root out the sin in me, I kind of go, you know, not, not for me. I'm a little bit nervous about that. But Mark makes it clear that forgiveness is actually the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need. It costs the greatest price and is the greatest blessing and has the most lasting result. And as Mark recounts this incredible miracle, I think to highlight not the fact that Jesus healed a paralyzed man, but to be clear that we have a greater need. That we don't need healing, we need forgiveness. Because when we have forgiveness for our sin, the evil in our world does not prevail. Things like cancer don't win. Hospice care is not the end. Death doesn't get to be the final end of our story. These are all symptoms of sin in our world. A constant reminder that the world is broken and we are in need of a savior. So while healing is a profound piece of Christ's authority, Mark is making it clear that Jesus' actions here aren't just after the symptoms of sin. He's after the disease itself. We see him begin to hint at what kind of savior we're going to need. We need one that doesn't just chase after sickness and disease and healing. We need one that is in for the whole game. We need one who's willing to go to a cross and die on our behalf to connect us back to God. Our greatest need is that we have been eternally separated from a loving creator. In the good news, my friends, is that Jesus came to solve that problem. He came with a distinct purpose and mission to solve. Tim Keller, in his book, Jesus the King, originally titled King's Cross, walks steadily through the book of Mark. It's hands down one of the most powerful accounts of the gospel that I have ever read. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to pick it up. It's probably in our library. If it's not, it will be by the end of this because Janet Schultz is that incredible. Um, but uh, if you haven't read it, as we journey through Mark, I would encourage you to read along because it opens the eyes of who Christ is and the gospel in a way that has just been so encouraging to me and my faith over the years. But Keller says this about this particular story. You see, at the moment, Jesus had the power to heal the man's body, just as he has the power to give you that career success, the relationship, the recognition you've been longing for, 
He actually has the power and authority to give each of us what we've been asking for. On the spot, no questions asked. But Jesus knows that not, that's not nearly deep enough. He knows that whether we're a paralyzed man lying on a mat or a struggling actor or a former struggling actor who's become a celebrity, we don't need someone who can just grant wishes. We need someone who can go deeper than that. Someone who will use his claws lovingly and carefully to pierce our self-centeredness and to remove the sin that enslaves us and distorts even our beautiful longings. In short, we need to be forgiven. That's the only way that our discontent can be healed. It will take more than a miracle worker or a divine genie. It will take a savior. And Jesus knows that to be our savior, he is going to have to die. And I want to show you a clip. It's a little bit old, so if you know anything about football, you'll know it's probably from 2005. Um, but it begins to show this dichotomy that we're seeing outlined by Keller, where our world says that if you have X, Y, and Z, money, fame, success, your life will be content and all will be well. But what we know is that even when we have gotten our most beloved, granted wish, that often we are left feeling like there's got to be something more. So let's watch. I watched that clip, I've watched it since probably 2007, and I just want to scream at him, Tom, I have the answer. I know. Like, he's not calling me asking me what I think, but I really wish he would because I have the answer. And friends, you have the answer. And I think often we look at people like a Tom Brady or some kind of celebrity and we go, oh, they're the exception to the rule. But you don't have to look very far in your own life to find someone who's going, there's got to be more to life than this. They might not be saying those words as clear as Tom did, but by their behaviors, by the way that they live their life, by the way that they interact with you, by the way that they ask questions of you, they are asking, what is this all about? 
And friends, you have the good news. The good news that the Son of Man came to forgive your sin and not just grant wishes or give you seven Super Bowl rings, but that it should put fire under your bones to act and tell someone. In my opinion, it should bring you out of retirement. Um, I personally have been so struck by the fact that in Mark's text, it says that Jesus saw the faith of those men. I can remember being a sophomore in high school and having a college student enter into my high school three times a week. She ate lunch with us every Tuesday and Thursday, was at every single one of my basketball and soccer games. In one season, we were 3-18. and 18. High school girls' basketball is rough, my friends. But she was there. And I, as a 16-year-old, kept thinking to myself, what is she doing here? Why is a college student spending so much time getting to know a bunch of high school kids? Why? It makes no sense. And today, I am very aware as to why she was there. She had the answer. She knew in her heart of hearts that teenagers today, people of today, are asking the question, there must be more. And she goes, I have the answer. Friends, her faith was so visible. She had the ministry of being an incarnational person, getting in the world of teenagers, but her faith was visible that even a very self-centered 16-year-old could look up from her own life and say, what are you doing here? And my question to you, friends, is, is your faith visible? I think about this story in Mark, and without those friends, we don't have this story. And I really want you to think for a moment, what story is ceasing to exist right now because your faith is not visible? Who's not getting to hear the good news that their sin is forgiven and they can be connected back to their creator? Because you are choosing to live an invisible faith life. Friends, if I followed you around, would I be asking why? Why do they live that way? Why do they spend their money that way? Why do they love their neighbors? Why do they get up in the morning and do what they do? Why? Or would I simply just be along for the ride? I've really had to ask myself, does the community of Boulder and beyond really ask itself why? Because this church is planted on this corner. Because I truly believe that if we have the solution to the world's largest problem, then everyone, I repeat, everyone should be wondering why we live, breathe, and act the way that we do. And when we finally get asked, why do you do that? We should be ecstatic to tell them. I love the friends because they were reckless. Be reckless. Have a visible faith. Leave people asking why. Give Christ all of the authority in your life. Let's pray. God, we are grateful to you that you have authority to heal disease, to read our hearts, but most importantly, to forgive our sin. 
And I do pray that we would be a people that leave our communities asking why. And that we would get to share the good news of who you are and your work on the cross. Pray that you would go before us this morning and help us to be bold and alive. We pray all of these things in your son's name. Amen.